0: Amen. You may be seated. Uh, as you're taking your seats, I do want to call your attention to something that's in the bulletin we haven't mentioned to you uh, before, and that's on pages 4 and 5 and 6. <coughs> as you probably know, we haven't sent this summer uh, a large team uh, to, to uh, on a mission trip, short-term mission trip, but we have been uh, privileged to have representing us Uh, at least one, two, three, four of our members and one of our staff members this summer on three different trips. And so if you would, please make sure you note those. Uh, Jerry, Linda, and Hannah uh, have been in Uganda and we're so thankful for their service. And for what they have done, I'm grateful for my daughter uh, and Joni's daughter, Nadine, going to Texas, really on our behalf and working with refugees there. And also our brother Paul Lawing has gone to uh, Warsaw, Poland this summer. So uh, please feel free if you have opportunity to talk to them all about their trips. If you would now, please take your Bibles and turn uh, to 1 Samuel, chapter 22. 1 Samuel chapter 22. Pastor Jim um, concluded his message last week and got us up to chapter 22, verse 5. And we're going to pick up now with verse 6. Let me warn you, this is a brutal story. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Now Saul heard that David was discovered. And the men who were with him... uh, And and the men who were with him. And Saul was sitting at Gibeah under a tamarisk tree on the height with a spear in his hand. Always seems to have that spear. And all of his servants were standing about him. We can imagine his inner circle. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin... Will the son of Jesse... Notice you can't even say David. It's basically like calling him his last name. It's sort of like when you're talking about someone else and say, Oh, Shelnut goes and does that. Instead of saying, Lee. There's distance. Notice the distance in his language. Hear now, people of Benjamin, Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards... Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me. Discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, not an Israelite. Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahiatu. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahiatu, and all of his father's house. The priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahiatu. Notice you can't call him Ahimelech, a distance. Hear now, son of Ahiatu. And he answered, Here I am, my Lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse? in that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me, to lie in wait as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king. Imagine being in his position. He mounts a a pretty good response. And and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law, and captain over your bodyguard, and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said to him, You shall surely die, Ahimelech. Now he'll call him by his name. You and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king, remember his inner circle, servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, now we know why Doeg's there. You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg, the Edomite, Turn and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox and donkey and sheep. He put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahiatu, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. With me, you shall be in safe keeping. The word of God for the people of God. I don't know if you heard the story. I suspect most of you did. There was a, a terrible wreck on I-77 near exit 23 on Wednesday. Uh, we, we know when there's a terrib- really terrible wreck... Because we'll soon, uh, where we live, we live very close, we'll soon hear helicopters circling, and we know those are the news helicopters, typically. I don't know if you've ever been on an expressway, and up in front of you, you know there's this terrible wreck. Everything is backed up, it's stopped. You're you're sitting there waiting, you hear the sirens, you see maybe the smoke billowing up. You know it's going to be bad. And the police begin directing you, moving the traffic along around the wreck. And you know it's going to be bad. You're prepared, right? But then when you get there close to the wreck and you look over, it's still what? Shocking. It's still hard to see, isn't it? I feel that way when I come to this story. We know it's going to be bad with Saul, don't we? We've already seen enough. We know his trajectory. We know where he's going. We're anticipating something bad about to happen. But I get here, and I read this, and I'm still what? Shocked. I mean, when I, when I was reading this for studying the sermon, I mean, first time I read it, it was like somebody punched me in the gut. The, the Bible is this amazing book. With very, very realistic and true stories. And God doesn't hide from us the brutalities of life. And this story ranks right on up there with some of the, the, the movies that you think are so powerful. This is a powerful story. It's sickening. And yet, embedded in it are, I think, at least two big ideas that are immensely, or should be, immensely encouraging to us as the people of God. I've been shocked uh, through these weeks how these ancient stories have, have such a, a, a wonderful application for us in the here and now. And I think there are two main big ideas here in the text that have wonderful application and encouragement for us today. The, the two ideas, or the first one is this. Even antichrists fulfill the word of God. Even antichrists fulfill the word of God. The second is this. God's kingdom and God's citizens endure because of God's king. God's kingdom, God's citizens, they endure the onslaught of antichrists because of God's King. Let's let's look at both of those. Let's unpack them. First one, even Antichrists fulfill the word of God. Let me say that if we're seeking to be faithful to the Scriptures, we've got to have in our minds a category of Antichrists, plural. Now, no matter what your eschatology may be, and that's a fancy word for your view of end times, And we have various opinions in the Christian world, and we have various opinions that are allowable within our Reformed world and our Reformed doctrine. I don't know what your opinion is, what your view is, but whatever it is, if you want it to be biblical, you need to have a category for multiple Antichrists. Yes, you can have a category for maybe one big and bad Antichrist, but you need to also have a category for multiple ones. It's it's scriptural. If we were to look at 1 John, we hear John say in chapter 2, children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And I might say since that day have come and have gone. You've got to have a category for multiple Antichrists. All right? Multiple antichrists. And what are these antichrists going to be like? What's their nature? Well, John helps us out there too. In John, first epistle John, chapter 2, he talks about antichrists bearing the mark of false teaching, particularly false teaching aimed at Jesus. Okay? They deny antichrists, deny Jesus is the Messiah. Antichrists deny Father and Son, so therefore they're denying the doctrine of the Trinity. Antichrists deny that the Son took on human flesh. They're they're denying the incarnation. So one mark of Antichrists is that they are heretical, but their heresies are aimed at Jesus. Daniel and John in the book of Revelation give us another mark, another mark that tells us We're dealing with someone who could bear the title Antichrist. And that mark is this, that characteristic is this. An Antichrist opposes, enters into conflict with, and seeks to crush God's people. Opposes, enters into conflict with, and seeks to crush God's people. Let's think of examples. We've got the example of Communist China today who are now cracking down as they have not done for a couple of decades. Cracking down upon the church of the Lord Jesus Christ with the aim of doing what? Crushing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm fascinated with the current sort of popular appeal of communism with certain of my fellow American citizens. I grew up in a day when I had to go into the middle of the hallway at school for bomb drills. I grew up in a house in which my father built a bomb shelter under it because of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so I don't understand a fascination with communism and communistic regimes. Because what happens in the communistic regime? The state becomes all-powerful. The state takes on property. It becomes owner of everything. It becomes employer of everything. It becomes regulator. It becomes judge. It becomes enforcer of everything. And when the state, no matter what form it takes... Thinks it's supreme, thinks it's the sovereign over everything, it thinks it has become the Messiah. And it will brook no rival, and it will seek to snuff out any rival. And Christians are always to be good citizens. But Christians also know we, if we are told to disobey God's law, we must obey God rather than men. And therefore the church is always under threat by such governments. And so I would say communist governments in their very essence are anti-Christ. And then particular individuals, we could talk about Stalin, we could talk about Mao, And you could go a little bit further afield from them. You could talk about Idi Amin. You could talk about Hitler. If you want to go through history, you could name one dictator after another dictator. You could talk about Nero. You could go to Antiochus Epiphanes. You could go to Haman. You could go to Jezebel. You could go to Pharaoh. And I'm sad to say you'd have to include the first king of Israel, Saul. What does Saul seek to do? Oppose and do what? Crush the people of God. There's Antichrist. Saul, I believe, was an Antichrist at this point. And yet there's hope here. Even Antichrists are not outside of God's sovereignty. Right? Can I get an amen? They are not outside God's sovereignty. Saul and Doeg's brutality, their their sinfulness, they are responsible for that. But even the the taking of the lives of these priests, who were priests in Eli's line, was predicted back in chapter 2 of Samuel. Their destruction, as wicked and vile as it is, is in fulfillment of God's Word. If you have opportunity, look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 31 through 33 today. They, even in their opposition, Saul and Doeg, even in their opposition to God and His kingdom, are actually fulfilling God's very Word. And they don't even realize it. It's a mysterious teaching, but brothers and sisters, let's take comfort in it. No matter the opposition to God's kingdom, no matter the Antichrist, that Antichrist cannot do anything that is outside of the control of the Lord God Almighty. And even in their opposition, God is bringing about His ultimate purposes. And His ultimate purpose for the church is glorious. It's one other interesting thing, too, that you probably need to know. Antichrist, as wicked and vile and dangerous and threatening as they are, and they are, they're fragile. They're, They're fragile. They come and they go. Notice even the fragility of Saul's leadership here. If we might even call, I don't even like to call it that. He tells his servants, his right-hand men, his inner circle, his fellow Benjamites, kill them. And what do his fellow servants, his inner circle do? Uh-uh. And it takes an outsider to carry out. The command. That should tell us, Saul's days, if we don't know this already, they're numbered. Every anti-Christ days are numbered. Every person that would raise his hand against Christ's people, their days are numbered. Numbered. They will come to an end. Because they're not sovereign. The Lord God Almighty is. Take comfort. Second, God's kingdom and citizens, they endure because of God's king. Verse 20. One of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahiatub named Abiathar, escaped. He escaped. He escaped. And he fled after David. Abiathar told David, that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Beathar, Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of, my, of your father's house. What a leader. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Think about this man David. He's he's yeah, we've already seen he's he's a great military guy. He's got skills. But when he was first seen by Samuel, what'd Samuel think? This one? When you got all these others? These other sons, why would you pick this one? He's an unexpected king. It's kind of counterintuitive, right? God likes to do that, does He not? God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are different than ours. And as, as Pastor Jim brought out last time, at the beginning of chapter 2, we see, see at this cave the gathering of what we might, find, might call the army of misfits and the army of the marginalized. Misfits and marginalized and an unexpected king. Full stop. Pause. Do not write off misfits. We do not judge with the eyes of the world. God uses, God loves to use, God relishes in using misfits. Do not write off the marginalized. Don't overlook them. Think about every person you may come in contact with on a daily basis that the world says, eh, not that big of a deal. I don't have time for that. I'm interested in this or this person. Do not write off misfits and the marginalized. Because guess what? That's the stuff of the kingdom. That's you. That's me. If you don't believe it, if you don't believe Lee's words, argue with the Apostle Paul and go to 1 Corinthians at the end of chapter 1. And take up the argument with him an unexpected king, an army of misfits and marginalized folk, and a kingdom that endures. Saul thought he had wiped them all out, all the priests out. One got away. Abiathar got away, escaped. Ralph Davis writes, Abiathar's escape doesn't mean that all of God's servants are immune from the world's butchery. But that the world's butchery can never wipe out all of God's servants. The Lord does not promise that we will never die for the kingdom of God but that the kingdom of God will never die. Even when it looks absolutely bleak. The kingdom of God will never die. And what did Jesus tell us to do? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And we all, all, all ought to, to like what we should be seeing coming. It's interesting, isn't it? David's here at this cave or this area. The prophet Gad, if you looked at verse five of chapter twenty-two. The prophet Gad's there with him, king and prophet. And now we've got what? Priest of Beathar's here. We've got king, we've got prophet, we've got priest, and we've got an army of misfits and the marginalized. And I'm anticipating great things. Just like I should have been anticipating some very awful, brutal things in Saul. And, 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 and notice what they're doing. They're all finding their safety in whom? King. And notice what type of king. A humble king. Taking on responsibility for their plight. If such safety could be found, if such a refuge could be found in David, how much more safety and refuge can be found? if we seek our refuge and our safety in the humblest of all kings, the greatest of all prophets, the perfect, sinless high priest. Find your safety and your refuge in Jesus. And if you do, it really doesn't matter how big and bad and awful an antichrist might be. Because God's kingdom is going to endure. doesn't mean you might not lose your life. But it does mean you have eternal life and you will enjoy the blessings of the new heavens and the new earth worshipping and relishing the lamb he who has ears let him hear let's pray holy father by your spirit enable each and every single individual here today find their refuge in Jesus. May every single person here today profess true and vital faith in Christ. May each and every one of us acknowledge that He is not only King of kings and Lord of lords, He is our King. And we rest in Him. And we love His kingdom. That will not happen apart from the sovereign moving of your Spirit in our hearts. So blow fresh upon our hearts and our souls now that we may soon sing the words of a glorious hymn and mean every one of them. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.